The following interview was recorded for CFRO The Pulse, Vancouver Co-op Radio's daily news show. The Pulse airs Monday to Friday at 7 a.m. on 100.5 FM and streaming live at coopradio.org. Today's chat is about a bold solution to mitigate homelessness. We talked to Claire Williams. Claire is the CEO of a Vancouver-based organization researching the impact of direct, unconditional cash transfers to individuals experiencing homelessness. And cash transfers are not a new idea. In fact, in Canada, cash transfers are a large part of our foreign aid program. The CBC reported in 2018 that Canada has distributed tens of millions of dollars through direct cash transfers to individuals in countries experiencing poverty. There are also other nonprofits that help regular donors donate money that is direct cash transfers directly to families experiencing poverty. The key here is the direct cash transfer. In other words, we trust recipients to spend the money in the way that is most beneficial to them. Cash transfers are also similar in some ways to universal basic income programs. And we've tried that in Canada twice, once in 70s in the small town of Dauphin, Manitoba, and the second time in Ontario in 2017. And according to researchers, the initial results for the Ontario program showed that participants were healthier, happier, and had significantly more motivation to find a better job. But the underlying tension in direct cash transfers programs is the question of trust. Do we, as a society, trust recipients to spend the cash responsibly? In this study, researchers examined whether direct cash transfers would help mitigate homelessness. And according to Foundations for Social Change, the organization that launched the study along with researchers from UBC, this study is the first in North America of its kind. I was excited for this conversation because at this time with the pandemic, Vancouver needs all the innovative solutions it can find to help folks experiencing homelessness. Here's Claire Williams. She's the CEO of Foundations for Social Change. Claire Williams, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And thank you for your interest in our work, May. Claire, okay, tell us a little bit about this study because the results were surprising and the results are great to hear. So give us please just an overview of what the study was and what you found. Yeah, so the study was piloted by the Foundations for Social Change. So we're a Vancouver-based charitable organization, and we are innovating in the space of helping vulnerable populations. So seeking ongoing, or sorry, solutions to ongoing social problems like homelessness, and really adopting a bold entrepreneurial mindset. And we believe that economic inclusion is critical to being able to participate in society, and that no one should be left behind. And so, um, behind that mission, that was really what informed our New Leaf project, which was a direct cash transfer project to empower people to move beyond homelessness. And the results were pretty were pretty interesting. So, after to my understanding, so there was this cash transfer to I believe if two to fifty participants, and after and what did we find with the results? Yeah. Yeah, so we ran the project as a randomized control trial. We gave out 50 cash transfers, one-time cash transfer of $7,500, 
we also had a control group of 65 people. So you need to have that control group because in order to run a randomized control trial, you need the control um, just to demonstrate impact, the impact of the intervention. In this case, it was cash. And what we found um, was incredible. Um, we found that people moved into stable housing faster, naturally spending fewer days homeless. We found that people increased their spending on food, on clothing, on rent, that people were achieving greater food security. Um, we were also finding that even after 12 months, people still retained over $1,000, which is pretty remarkable if you look at the cost of living in the Lower Mainland. And then I love this statistic just because it disrupts our stereotypes around people living in poverty and around homelessness. We saw that um, people made wise financial choices. So there was a reduction of 39% in spending on alcohol, cigarettes, um, and drugs which is really, really fantastic. Um, you know, so often we say that we can't give cash to folks living in poverty because they're going to quote unquote waste the money, but our data actually shows that's not the case. And that's a big one, isn't it? Because that's just uh, the narrative that, um, that is just circulating out there when it comes to folks who are experiencing poverty and homelessness. Yeah, yeah, it is the narrative. And you know, it's almost, it very much is that it's a narrative and it's based on story. It's based on ideology. Um, and it's incredibly harmful to people who we are trying to um, work shoulder to shoulder with in community to better their lives. So, you know, beyond the implications of this project, when we look at social policy at a provincial and federal level, a lot of social policy is built around these broken stereotypes that, you know, we criminalize people for living in poverty we assume that they're um, bad people. And so we make the burden of proof for folks to get on any kind of support incredibly high because we default to this thinking that, you know, they're trying to cheat the system. And then beyond that, we take a paternalistic attitude that as decision makers or people in positions of privilege and power, we know better um, than the people we're trying to help or support or empower um, what they need in their lives. And that actually isn't true. And our, our pilot project shows that. And I mean, this this roots study and the results are really you know you know really surprising and just so pleasant to hear. And I just want to dig into the details a little more to understand how this study can relate to a larger outcomes or the larger population here. So tell us a little bit about what you see this as a solution for, and what this what direct cash transfers may not be. Be useful for. So, for one thing, I noticed that in the eligibility requirements, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there you that we were looking for folks who were recently homeless, and so not homelessness entrenched, mm -hmm. um, and we we're looking for folks with um, who did not have substance um, substance addiction issues and did not have mental health issues. Is that correct? That is correct. So no one has ever, to our knowledge, no one has ever done this kind of work in the world whereby they have awarded um, cash transfers to people who are experiencing homelessness. So because we're innovating in this space, we wanted to start small um, and work with people who had a higher degree of functionality. So to your point, we had a set of eligibility criteria we worked with people who were recently homeless, so less than two years homeless, and then um, who were between the ages of 19 to 64. And then um, we were working with folks who did not have any significant issues with substance use, alcohol use, and mental health challenges. 
So we were working with a very specific group. And I think it's great that we were able to, quote unquote, test this approach with this group and see the impact that we've had. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of benefit is that is one, we get to see that, okay, this, this is a really promising approach to homelessness. Um, we get to empower those folks to move forward in their lives. We also reduce pressure on the existing shelter system of care. So while we're helping those people move forward, it releases pressure on our shelters, which we know are at capacity, which then allows them to devote the resources for people who need possibly some more wraparound supports. And then to your question, you know, would this work with other groups? We want to find that out. So it's an open question that we want to continue exploring as we keep piloting different direct cash transfer programs. And not to detract from the study, I want to put the study in context with what we know about the homelessness population in Metro Vancouver. I believe the last Metro Vancouver homelessness count was 2017, and we know that the count is underreported uh, for a number of reasons, or the number is lower than mm-hmm. expected for a number of reasons. And by the um, in the survey of participants, I believe it was something like just over 50% of folks surveyed said that they did have at either substance addiction issues or some sort of mental health issues. And many folks, uh, a, n- a number of folks reported both. Mm-hmm. So we are talking in this particular study or at least this particular version of the study, at, at, at least, we're talking about folks who don't have, uh, who don't experience those issues, which is just about, probably about slightly less mm-hmm. than half of the homelessness population in Vancouver. And just to just to and again not to detract from the study, but just trying to understand what this could mean for as we look at homelessness in Metro Vancouver. Yeah, and I think you know to your point, um, you just illustrated it. The homeless population is not homogenous, and to date we have approached it from a one size fits all solution. And this approach, this pilot project, actually speaks to the need for innovation and for developing more bespoke um, approaches for different subsets of that population. So just like in the general population, we all have different needs. There are different supports that help us move forward in our lives that work for some folks but don't work for other folks. Well, it's the same for, same for people who are experiencing homelessness. So we found for, you know, for the 49%, this is an intervention that is really promising. Um, and that's not to say it's not a promising intervention for the other 51%. We just haven't had the resources or the time yet to explore that. When the study expands, I'm sure that'd be a... I, I, and I, I think I saw in, your, in the report that you published that this was something else that you were looking at, expanding yeah, yeah. into the other demographic groups. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the demographics of the 50, part, uh, 50 participants we did select for this study? Yeah. So or, sorry, at least specifically for the cash transfer, get direct cash transfer component. I know there was a larger amount of participants for the entire study. Yeah, absolutely. So we had an average age was 42, which is quite young. Um, And that holds steady, I think, with the findings from the homelessness count. 39% of our participants had kids under the age of 19. Um, We also saw... um, just thinking back to the data, I don't have that data right in front of me, so just give me a second. 28% of our participants were employed, so in some form of employment, um, which speaks to the fact that you know many people cannot afford to pay rent at the minimum wage. Um, we also found that 24% of our participants also didn't have any ID replacement, and that's actually, to me, a really quick fix, but a huge barrier for folks. You know, you can't move into employment unless you have ID, but a lot of people don't have the $60 to replace their ID, so they get caught in this catch-20. 
And let's talk more about the results of the study. And I mean, I'm very, I'm very much uh, not just sympathetic, but excited about the results of the study, but I just want to understand this more. So I'm looking at days homeless um, experienced by the, by experience by the participants of the study who were giving, given the cash transfer versus the uh, control part study participants who weren't giving, given the cash transfer. And to my reading of the results here, please again, correct me if I'm wrong, that after about 12 months, it, both groups were actually experienced about the same amount of homelessness. So I, I believe it's, I believe I'm, what I'm seeing here is that under 25, after 12 months, only under 25% of participants in both groups, the folks who were given the direct cash and the folks who weren't given the direct cash, um, both groups experienced, are experiencing just about the same level of homelessness. So I'm wondering if there's an, if just to, if there's an argument to be made here that, um, that the direct ca cash transfers did, uh, did help folks make the transition faster which is great uh, because it alleviates human suffering, but that folks would have eventually gotten there anyway without the cash transfer. Yeah, and you're exactly right. You know, everybody catches up at 12 months, but I don't know about you, but I haven't spent one day in homelessness. So 360.5 days is a pretty significant amount of time to exist in that experience. We know from the research that homelessness is incredibly challenging experience. It's detrimental to people's physical health, mental health. People are at increased risk of violence, increased risk of sexual assault. We see that people who um, are homeless have a reduced life expectancy of 17 years. So it is by no means a benign experience. And I think the quicker we can support people to move out of homelessness, the better. It's the humane and compassionate response to people in need. And then beyond that we did actually see that there was a cost saving so moving people into housing and providing them with stability actually results in a cost savings to society so the status quo is not cheap it costs on average 53,000 to 134,000 per person experiencing homelessness per year so the cost of doing quote-unquote nothing it's not free so what if we could empower people up front what if we could take the dignified and compassionate response see them as human beings beyond their circumstance and quickly empower them to move forward in their lives. I think that's the response we would all want to receive if we found ourselves in those same circumstances. I certainly empathize with that. I can't, I can't imagine how difficult your spend in homelessness would be. Uh, and I'm grateful to not have in those circumstances. Um, I want to ask about the, um, the amount of the cash transfer. Uh, $7,500 of one-time cash transfer. Um, why $7,500? Well, it was a great question. You know, we sat there um, in a room full of very smart people asking, what is the right amount? Is there a perfect amount? And what we decided at the end was to benchmark it to a year of income assistance. So at the time of study design, um, it was 2016, and folks were receiving $610 a month in income assistance. Times 12 came to $7,250, and we just rounded it up to $7,500. And so we did that intentionally just because I do think it has important policy implications. You know, if we look at current ways of dispersing income assistance and disability, we meet out the smallest amount possible that keeps people in survival mode. They're by no means thriving. They're not able to move forward in their lives. And so what if we actually trusted people? What if we radically 
overhauled social policy and built in trust and compassion and gave people larger sums up front, which would hopefully um, quickly move them out of their situation, which is what our study shows. I hear you about um, the policy implications. And my first thought was when I looked at the number was $7,500 is not a lot of money. <laughs> Rent in Vancouver, as we know, is incredibly expensive. And I, I looked also at um, the breakdown of spending detailed in the report there. And I noticed that um, I believe it was an average spend of $402 um, on rent every month. And I and I thought to myself, man, those are lucky folks to be able to find for a rent at $400 in this city. Um, was there a thought about increasing? Where where was, you talked about being in a room full of smart people and is trying to determine this perfect amount, which was, which was, I'm sure was difficult, but was there a thought of increasing, substantially increasing the cash amount and and having a smaller study? Yeah, we did have conversations. Well, not having a smaller sample size. So from a statistical point of view, um, right. 50 people was the absolute smallest number that we could have in order to have statistically relevant results. Um, but the amount of cash, absolutely. We would have liked to have increased it. We would have liked to possibly disperse a second payment six months or 12 months later, but we were constrained by funding. So we were fundraising for the project. And so we had to set a limit. Right. Um, and could you maybe talk a little bit about um talk a little bit about how the the money was spent by folks and could you and you can sort of detail for us give a little bit of detail on how that money was tracked and I'm, this is a smaller logistical point but I'm curious because I know that budgeting and tracking our spending is hard for for most of us and I'm sure that that's probably not the first thing uh, top of mind for folks who are experiencing homelessness how was it that you were able to track how much people were spending yeah, so we saw, first of all, in terms of how people spent their money, we saw on average cash recipients spent 52% of their budget on food and rent, another 15% on items such as medications and bills, and then 16% on clothes and transportation. So, you know, people are using that money to just pay for their, the bills that often um, quickly mount up and on an income assistance they can't afford. And then in terms of how we tracked it, um, we asked people, so it was all self-reported, so we had interviewers meet with our participants every three months. And as part of our survey and questionnaire, we asked people um, what their spending habits were like. And so they self-reported. And then there were a few individuals who wanted to share their bank statements with us. Um, and so we have more kind of um, quantifiable data from that. And that's great. And I want to, I just want to ask a couple of questions, make sure, or I make sure I, to make sure I ask them, which is um, self-reported data can be problematic, especially with something like this that is so norm and so stereotype. Um, so sort of mind, uh, what's the word for it? Um, where it's, where it's just laden with a lot of sensitivities. Could it be that folks, how much guarantee do we have that folks were actually spending money in the categories they self-reported as opposed to categories like alcohol, drugs, and so on and so forth that are perhaps less desired? Yeah, and I think this would be a great question for the researchers, but I will give you my um, response to that is the whole premise of our work is about trust and believing in people. And so we have worked hard to develop rapport and relationship with all of our participants. And so we just believe that those self-reports are accurate. Let's say, for example, um, in the area of um, drugs, alcohol, and tobacco, people were still reporting to us that they were consuming those goods, but just at a lower level. So 
the whole premise of our work is based on human goodness in trusting and believing in people. And so that just is why we believe the data as well. Claire, can I ask you about the, um, the amount of people who did spend, if there was an amount of the number of people who did sp- take some of that money and spend it, increase their spending on alcohol, drugs and um, other alcohol, drugs and other substances? What would you like to know? Um, whether whether we did see an amount of people who did. I well, I, and I'd have to ask my researcher, but the statistic they have given me is that there was a 39% reduction across right. the group. So, and you know, I think one of the reasons we're becoming clear on why that might be is that people aren't self-medicating. So as I mentioned earlier, living in homelessness is a fairly traumatic experience. So people are often smoking more to calm their nerves. They are drinking more to keep warm and they're using substances to stay awake at night so they're not at risk of violence. Thanks, Claire. And I also wanted to ask you about sort of stepping back a little bit about, I wanted to ask about the team's connection to the downtown east side and to the neighborhood. And I was curious because I was going through the bios of the folks on the team, you know, such well-qualified people yourself in uh, a long background in environmental uh, consulting. I think there was a, I think there is, I could be seeing on Saje Saje Wellness, um, uh, one of the co-founders of that company on the, on the list of board members. And I didn't see many um, folks with lots of connections to the neighborhood. I think there was, I think one of your project coordinators, if I believe you used to work at um, a shelter in the downtown east side, which is great. And I just wanted to ask, again, not to detract from the study and not to detract from the, the wonderful findings in the study, but I just wanted to ask a little more so that um, so that folks can understand sort of how the team is connected at downtown east side and how much um, how much of the unique characteristics of the neighborhood was taken into account uh, when this study was being uh, prepared? Yeah, so I think the first thing um, that's important to highlight is we were not a downtown east side focused project. Homelessness occurs across the region. So we worked with shelters in North Vancouver, Coquitlam, New Westminster, Surrey, Abbotsford, and the city of Vancouver. So uh, we're not focused on the downtown east side. But to speak to your point about incorporating perspectives of people with lived experience, at the front end of our project, we did work with an individual who consulted with us on the study design and helped us ground truth some of our assumptions. And then we now have a lived experience advisory panel, which is comprised of newly project alumni. And so again, people with lived experience, people who benefited from the cash transfer, and we meet with them now every two weeks. We'll be working shoulder to shoulder with them to design our expansion project and other interventions. Thanks, Claire. Um, I wanted to ask you too as well about um, in terms of now looking at policy and how money is spent to reduce homelessness uh, and thanks for pointing out not just in the downtown east side um, but also in the region um, sort of the different ways in which we can put money towards solving homelessness there is direct cash transfers we could be we could be um, we could be putting money into housing subsidies putting money into creating affordable housing I just wanted to get your sense of what that looks like, because if we put money towards direct cash transfers, there would just be less in the budget for other forms of um, poverty alleviation. 
Yeah, well, I actually don't agree with that. I don't think that it's a zero-sum game. And this project is indicative of that. Um, we were successful in raising money from private funders, foundations, and governments. So by no means is it a zero-sum game, and I think that's dangerous thinking. Um, and I do think it's important to have a suite of approaches. Um, so using direct cash transfers may work for certain populations. Using tradi more traditional approaches may work for certain populations. Definitely using subsidies and rent supplements to prevent people from even becoming homeless. I think we should. That's really what we should be doing is preventing people from becoming homelessness and the homeless in the first place. So I don't think again we're really trying to encourage um, and and underemphasize, sorry, um, that this is not a one size fits all solution. We do not believe in one size fits all solutions because that's got us to the current situation. That's where we're at now because we do have one size fits all. So we're looking to advance meaningful risk taking in the name of social change and working in partnership with existing organizations to solve these um, these challenges in society. Thanks, Claire. And probably my last question for you is so moving forward. Um, what's the ideal vision here, say 10 years, 20 years from now? How What, what would you see, like to see this project look like and how do you think it would be funded? Oh gosh, well, the world is changing so incredibly quickly from Maybe one, let's say three years instead yeah, of ten One week to the next. So I don't even think I can tell you what's going to happen next year, to be honest. But what I will say is, in light of the pandemic, what we've seen is government's ability to very quickly pivot and respond to people's needs. And let's say with the SERP payments, they obviously, not obviously, but they have decided that $2,000 is the minimum amount of money that people need to meet their basic needs. We look to um, provincial wealth uh, income assistance rates and disability rates they're less than half of that so it really calls into question some of the decision making around public policy so you know our kind of vision is to see government start incorporating these kind of approaches um, into um, their programming but until that time I believe strongly that it's the responsibility of charity and philanthropy to drive social research and development to test and innovate in this space so that we can amplify impact and make a more equitable Canada. Claire, thank you so much for your time today and for your work. I look very much forward to hearing about uh, more results from the project and about the expansion of the project. Thanks for the conversation Mishi, I enjoyed it. And that was Claire Williams, CEO of Foundations for Social Change. Her organization launched a study to examine whether direct, unconditional cash transfers could help reduce homelessness. You're listening to The Pulse on CFRO, your super local morning news show here on Vancouver Core Radio 100.5 FM. I'm Tan Macy. Tell us what you think of the show. I'm super curious. I'm at Macy at coopradio.org. That's M-E-I-X-I at coopradio.org. Take care, and we'll talk again soon. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada.